0: So this afternoon we pick up once again with empathetic joy, and especially in the Mahayana context this is closely intertwined with a sense of gratitude, happy gratitude, just kind of eagerly anticipating the possibility of repaying the the kindness of others. When I was about 22 and then 23, I had really one of the most delightful series of experiences I've ever had. Very romantic, that is not in a, how do you say, sexual way, but a romantic in kind of the old fashioned way, of receiving the life story from one of my principal teachers, Geshe Raptan. This is 1972, and so a lot of these older monks who were scholars, teachers, were called Geshe, and back then, we Westerners hardly had a clue what that meant. So I asked him, would you tell me your life story? How did you become a geisha? What does that mean? What does it mean? Now, you know, any galupa knows what a geisha is, but back in 72, you know, we didn't know. And so he did. And so about every, roughly once a week or so, I'd hike uh, hike up in the mountains where he had this little Neanderthal hut where he lived and where he'd been in retreat for years. And then I would pose questions to him and then he'd tell me his life story in kind of this dialogical fashion. Two things really spring out of that, is after he'd finished his years of training, graduated top of his class, outstanding scholar, great debater, became a kind of a doctrinal consultant for His Holiness Dalai Lama. So really, you know, tremendous success. And he could have been easily Abbot of Sera Monastery, he could have gone on for Tantric studies, who knows, he might have become the head of the Galupa Order. I mean, he was an outstanding Geshe. Everybody knew that. But he commented to me that after he finished all of his formal studies, in which case, the kind of you know, within the Galupa tradition, the world was his oyster. That is, he, he could have done anything he wanted to. The Ab- Abbot here, Abbot here, anything. He was uh, renowned. He said that what went through his mind, at this point he was about 50, roughly 50 years old or so, uh, is he just was recalling the kindness of his own teachers, his own lamas. And he had tremendous guru devotion, very, very strong, very, very deep faith, reverence for his own lamas. And he said, now many of my lamas are very old, or they've passed away, and when I fr- reflect upon their kindness, then just overwhelming, overwhelmingly the urge, or the thought arises, how can I repay their kindness? How can I repay their kindness? And he said, well, there are many ways, but the most important way, the m- way that they would most value is if I single-pointedly put their teachings into practice. So instead of going off and becoming abbot of a great monastery with hundreds or even a couple of thousand monks or, you know, all kinds of things, he could have gone off to the West and eventually is sent by his holiness to the West, but he didn't go there because he wanted to. There he was at the top of his profession, so to speak, and then he moved off to this primitive, I mean, extremely primitive little hut and lived there for six years. Just devoting himself to practice uh, in the simplest of circumstances, just single-pointedly focusing on meditation day and night. So that's how he chose to repay the kindness of his teachers. And then eventually, when His Holiness, whether well one of his students, asked him to come to Switzerland, then his, he went to His Holiness, his Holiness said, "Please go, it'll be of great benefit." So that he devoted the rest of his life then, from the time he went to Switzerland, to helping people in the West. He made another comment, too, during the course of his telling his life story, when he kind of summing up, summing up, and he said, now, based upon these years of an intensive study, almost unbelievable study, the intensity of the study, uh, debates that would go on all the way through the night for two years, it was just, you know, just unbelievably intense, he said, now, based upon the study, the practice, because he was really a meditator through that, tr- through that time as well, he said, I've come to some very strong conviction that, and of course he's speaking within the context of Mahayana Buddhism, and he was saying that it appears to me now that all of Dharma, all of Dharma, theory and practice, all focuses in on bodhicitta. And that is, there's only three types of Dharma in the whole, in the whole of Mahayana Dharma, the whole of Buddha Dharma. Only three types of dharma. There's one, and that is, there's a whole range of dharma that is can be understood as causes of bodhicitta. They're all leading up to bodhicitta. And then there's a range of dharma that is the explicit cultivation of bodhicitta. And then there's a third and final category, and that's all the dharma that flows out of bodhicitta. And that's all there is. There's more to, no more to dharma than that. Yeah? And then... He said, and he said it, it tongue-in-cheek, but he actually meant it too. He said, "Now, if anybody wants to, deba- to mate with me, come on, give it your best shot. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to debate? You disagree? Come, tell me. No, 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 no. <laughs> so, the Ratan and Geshingo and Taigi during that same period made the statement very early on that you know if you encounter the Dharma, the Mahayana Dharma, and you're really drawn to it, you have faith in it, you want to follow the path, then if you don't, if you have full opportunity to achieve Bodhicitta, genuine Bodhicitta, and thereby enter the Mahayana path, if you don't achieve that, then what have you done with your life? What were you waiting for? You wasted your life. You had an opportunity to cultivate Bodhicitta that would be irreversible, that you would never fall off the path in any possible future life, even if it's eons, and there's this w- life that comes together, and all the circumstances come together where you could do it, and then you have other priorities. Poor, oh, what a shame! So, these two—these were my like my like my uh, mom and dad—engaging on uh, daigai yesharab and during these f- o- o early years, it was just going back and forth between one and the other, and then His Holiness overseeing everything. Uh, they certainly—they really shaped me. Or at least they did their best. <laughs> Still working out a lot of rough, edged, r- rough edges. But when we consider these teachings in the light of the practices emphasized here, which as you know, w- very well know, I was encouraged to teach by His Holiness, so this wasn't just some crazy idea I had. This dynamic between the four immeasurables on the one hand and the shamatha on the other, it really is a dance, and I think a lot of you have seen how they, the synergy that can arise between the two, three modes of shamatha, the four four immeasurables. And that is from a Theravada perspective or the Shravakayana perspective, it's quite clear these four immeasurables are really there to help you achieve shamatha. They're in the samadhi category within Shila Samadhi, Prajñā. They're samadhi. And what are they designed to do? Help you achieve samadhi. Overcome the five obscurations. And why would you want to do that? So you can completely eradicate those five obscurations by having shamatha and then vipassana, becoming a stream enterer and carrying on along the path to enlightenment. So the four measurables there are really designed there to facilitate, to help you achieve shamatha so that you can achieve vipassana and proceed along the path to your own liberation and be done with samsara forever. So this becomes really obvious how valuable they can be because I think all of you by now, you've had plenty of chance to have emotional upheavals, uh, surges, Sadness, of anxiety, of happiness, of depression, of grumpiness, and a bunch of other emotions and desires. And as all this stuff is getting churned up in the process of practicing shamatha, they're your four best friends. Loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity to help you work through them, help you massage your way through them, balance it out, ease yourself out, and then carry on through with the practice. So on the one hand, these four measurables really are in the service of shamatha, they really can tremendously facilitate shamatha. And if one is thinking, oh, yeah, but what about accumulating merit and purifying obscurations? Shouldn't we be doing uh, mundo? What is more purifying than the cultivation of loving kindness and compassion? Come on. And as we venture into awareness of awareness, starting to probe into the very nature of identity, the nature of mind, the subject, the observer, we're definitely encroaching right into Vipassana to realize the emptiness of the mind. According to Mahayana Buddhism, there is just nothing that purifies the mind more powerfully within the whole Mahayana context than realization of emptiness and the cultivation of bodhicitta. That's it. Those are the two most powerful, transformative. And in terms of accruing merit, just read the first chapter of Shantideva and see what bodhicitta has to do with accruing merit. Read the same chapter to see what bodhicitta has to do about purifying the mind. So it's all very well. It's wonderful to do these external rituals and so forth to purify something internal. But it's also something really good to do something internal, to purify something internal. So from the perspective of seeking our own liberation, the four immeasurables are really in the service of shamatha. When we venture out of retreat, those four immeasurables are there to protect our dharma practice, to help us engage with life, not go topsy-turvy. But from a Mahayana perspective, the perspective of a bodhisattva, it is really, I mean, all of that is true. None of that is refuted. But the shamatha is really in the service of the four immeasurables. Bottom line. Which are more important? In immeasurable loving kindness, compassion, and so forth, or finding a really nice bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality in your own mind stream? I think it's kind of obvious. So the shamatha then is in the service of the four immeasurables. Now it's obvious that the more, if more sense of ease that we have, the four immeasurables will be Easier to cultivate, the greater stability when we practice them. We're really focused. There's a continuity, and not just having a wandering mind. The greater clarity than when we attend to other sentient beings, they arise with greater vividness. We have a sense more of their presence. We really a sense of that we're attending to people and not just little caricatures in our own mind. But there's another aspect, and maybe it's on that point that I'll end. And that is the more that we cultivate and really start to get the taste of the cultivation of shamatha. Not waiting, waiting, waiting for some great big blast of ecstasy, but really just experiencing some of the serenity, the ease, the quiet, the peace of mind. And then gradually, gradually, in some cases, just a greater sense of well-being arising, the sukha gradually arising, and then great, and then eventually we'll have spikes of priti, of joy, of bliss, you know, arising, arising, say, wow, and this is all coming from inside, huh? Where's more? I want more. Come up. (laughs) Come up wherever you are, you know? And the more we discover these are exactly our internal resources. Now, we have many more internal resources than just these three, the six perfections and so forth and so on. But the more that we discover this eudaimonic well-being, a sense of well-being and then bliss, joy, that arises without reliance upon some pleasant stimulus, that it's arising because the mind is well, the more we discover that, and you really know through your own experience that you're carrying the inner resources of your own well-being within you, then as we attend to others, we are tending, fr- we are tending to others from a perspective of fullness. Insofar as, because this is not black and white, and it's certainly not Buddhist, non-Buddhist, there's nothing sectarian about this at all, but insofar as, we're just not aware of our own internal resources. We look inside and it just seems to be empty or a blank slate or basically a little cauldron of unhappiness, uneasiness, anxiety, restlessness, and so forth. Insofar as our internal resources seem to be a toxic waste dump or just flat, you know, just like the plains of Texas. Just flat, dry, hot, with scrub and a lot of rattlesnakes. That's what you're getting when inside. If that's what you perceive when you're just on your own and you're bereft, you're separated from all the pleasant stimuli that make life enjoyable, then if you just don't see much inside and then you start to open your eyes and say, Oh, there's sentient being, sentient being, we start to attend to others. How will we attend to them? I think it's almost certain. What else could we do? Who can make me happy? Who can make me feel secure? Who can protect me from things that I don't want? Suffering, anxiety, pain. Who can give me some security? Who can give me something? Because I clearly need something that I don't have. And so, ooh. And as soon as that happens, we're into an i it relationship. And then we find some people, as we're going in one direction, oh, I think this person will give me happiness. And then another person comes in and cuts us off. Oh don't like that. I it relationship. These people can help me, have helped me, hope will help me. I want them to continue helping me. Whoop! These people got in the way. <laughs> Out of the way, please. <laughs> and so we're right into I it, no matter what. It's pleasant it's and an un- unpleasant it's. And there's a whole bunch of it's that just don't matter. They're just, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> Nothing? Okay, next and we just swept aside most of the 7 billion people on the planet. It don't matter. And so insofar as we cultivate, we become aware, of, we discover these internal resources for our own own well-being, then we're attending to others, but we're just doing that. We're literally attending to others, and we can actually see them, gazing back, attending back, with their own world, each one at the center of each one's mandala, each one wanting happiness, wanting to be free of suffering. And it can be quite startling, quite startling. You know. And in attending to others with that fullness within, then a real chance of cultivating love and kindness, compassion, empathetic joy and equanimity. All of that, then all of these shamatha, blessings of shamatha flowing into the four immeasurables then the four immeasurables coalescing around they're almost like fusing into a platform of extraordinary equanimity exceptional equanimity filled with heart and then venturing from there into great compassion great loving kindness and onto bodhicitta so that's what we're here for at least that's what I'm here for to orient there, to find a path. A path out of suffering and the causes of suffering for oneself and others. And when we think about repaying the kindness of others, so Geshe Rappen spoke of repaying the kindness of his teachers. And his teachers were there, I mean, fantastic teachers. I knew some of them, a couple of them were my my, my lamas as well. Captain Tijan Rinpoche and His Holiness Dalai Lama, and Kalur Rinpoche. On the one hand, how best to repay the kindness of the teacher well, the Lama? Well, what are they teaching us for? Give us a bit more comfortable life? Give us entertainment? Or to actually, what is their motivation? To help us gain liberation, enlightenment. But similarly, when we think of sentient beings, as we'll do in the meditation starting in just a couple of minutes, and we reflect upon the kindness we've received from others, from early on, from childhood, infancy on. And then, of course, you can, if, you, if your worldview allows this, you can expand beyond that because the kind of ascendant beings didn't start in this lifetime. And extending outward, outward, in, into time, into the past, out into space, and seeing there is this ocean of sentient beings. Every single one of them as important as this one here. Each one wanting a divine happiness, wishing to be free of suffering equally worthy, for the most part, just veiled in ignorance, not having any clear vision of what are the actual causes of suffering, what are the actual causes of happiness, veiled in ignorance. And so thinking, how can I best repay the kind of of sentient beings? And and ruminating on that, chewing it over. Saying, well, how about helping them find what they really want? How about f- helping them really be free of suffering and its causes and finding genuine happiness and its causes? And how can I possibly do that if I've not found it myself? So whether it's to repay the kindness of the lamas, to repay the kindness of all mother sentient beings, that all, all the roads seem to flow into bodhicitta. They all seem to flow into one. bodhicitta is then the great launching pad. If shamatha is the launching pad of bodhicitta and to the four measurables, then bodhicitta is the launching pad to enlightenment. So, I made one mistake. I don't like to make mistakes. At least I don't like to repeat them. So I made one mistake yesterday. I was a bit pompous. A bit pompous. I think it was yesterday. Pretty sure. When I said I was superior to a salamander with a broken leg. I spoke too quickly. <laughs> spoke too quickly. Uh, salamander with a broken leg probably not going to live very long, right? Doesn't can't get around fast. And so, where's that salamander going to with a broken leg going to be reborn? I mean, I was reading stories in the Pali Canon of you know reference to an animal next next rebirth human being. Disciple of the Buddha. Last lifetime animal. Next lifetime. Disciple of Buddha. So if I see a salamander with a broken leg, I think, oh, right now I'm smarter than you are. But in your next lifetime, I don't know where you're going to be. And in my next lifetime, I don't know where I'm going to be either. (laughs) So which is going to be higher in the next lifetime? The salamander or me? I don't know. Not so clear. So I have to say, sorry, salamander. (laughs) Just for the time being, I'm a bit smarter than you are. But that too will pass. So no, I'm not superior to salamanders even with broken leg. So confession is over. (laughs) I'll try not to make that mistake again. Sorry, salamanders of the world. I'll stop denigrating you. Uh, Let's practice mudita. may, if you wish, begin the session with a sense of satisfaction. Could it even be gratitude that each of us here has this opportunity, this opportunity of leisure, this great opportunity to cultivate our minds, to identify for ourselves what the true causes of suffering are, what the true causes of happiness are. to take delight in our own practice in a spirit of gratitude for all those who have made it possible for us to be here now with nothing to do but to cultivate our own minds and seek out our own inner resources. So in that spirit, let's settle the body, speech, and mind in their natural states. arouse your mind in the act of cultivation of empathetic joy. And in this first sweep through time go back in time, if you will, to your own infancy, childhood, the period of growing up, early, early adulthood and so on. And attend to the kindness as shown to you by others. With each in-breath, imagine receiving the kindness, the benefits of others. With each out-breath, breathing out the light of your gratitude, your delight in the virtues of others. awareness up to the recent past and to the present attending not only to those with whom you've had direct contact but if you consider the clothes you're wearing the food you eat from from day to day the utensils you use, your computer whatever it may be and think of how many sentient beings contributed to your well-being. Go back in time once again to early childhood. This time in the spirit of taking delight in virtue. This time virtue that happens to have manifested by way of your own body, speech, and mind. Scan through time and take delight in the virtue you've brought to the world. Turn your attention to the future. and consider now how would you love to repay the kindness of others from this time forward, in the near term and the long term? What is the greatest good you could offer? all appearances and let your awareness rest. lasso. So some of these are real doozies. Okay, that one's for me to read later. Good, very long. Got one later. Oh, please give some advice on how to maintain composure in our life and keep the continuity in our practice. Shamatha and the four immeasurables. <laughs> 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 I think I've been addressing that for the last seven weeks. And of course, I don't mean—I never, ever, ever mean this in, a, in, exclu- in an exclu- exclusive fashion, as if now ignore what you've heard from other teachers. It's never my mind; it never is my lips. So your practices of refuge, of six perfections, of the four thoughts that turn the mind, guru yoga, stage regeneration—all of that is designed for exactly this. So it's a, a fundamental criterion that is—I think it's very important that we revitalize. A greater sense of of empiricism, empiricism and pragmatism, in in Dharma today. I think we could be doing a lot better. Because if we go back to the teachings of the Buddha, what are the teachings for? Is it so that we can get all the doctrine right and be able to answer all the questions? Because we've learned all the, we've gone through all the classes and passed exams and gone through this stage and that stage and that stage, and these preliminaries and that preliminaries and this study and we got this degree. Is that? I mean. A lot of Buddhism kind of looked that way, you know. How many classes have you passed? How many premonitions did you finish? Blah blah blah. Well, there can be value in all of that, but if we go back to the teachings of the Buddha, it was really all about purifying the mind of of mental afflictions and cultivating virtue. It was just that simple. And the criterion, if a practice, if you're engaging in a practice, is does can you see that it really benefits your mind? The very famous Kalama Sutta. And the Buddha encouraged those. Whom he, w- whom he was addressing, encouraged them to have a spirit of skepticism, challenging, being defiant in the face of authority, authority of old stuff, of hearsay, of just because a guru said, because it's written in a scripture and so forth. He encouraged them in all of that. And then he came back and said, you know, there are three mental afflictions, craving, hostility, and delusion. If you can find something that can help alleviate these, follow it. If you can find practices, teachings and practices, Help to alleviate the afflictions of the mind, and you can see for yourself that virtuous, wholesome, beneficial states of mind are arising. Then practice that, and then he went right from there to the four measurables. So, I think it's easy to overlook. I mean, especially in an ancient tradition and a very rich, multifaceted tradition such as Tibetan Buddhism, when there are so many levels, so many initiations, so many lineages, so many, so ma- this, that, the other thing, so many high this, high that, high that. And it's so easy, I think, frankly, to lose sight. You know, uh, If you've just gone for some teaching, you've done some practice, you've just finished one practice, can you see any benefit? Or is it all blind faith? And so we should really see benefit. And so wh- what benefit? Well, here's a criterion, and this is the response to the question. One clear criterion that your practice is working is that... As you're engaging with the vicissitudes of life, you're able to maintain a much greater degree of composure. The, the emotions, the balance of the mind is not so topsy-turvy, upset by every little thing, not even upset by big things. Just maintaining that composure, a mind that maintains its equilibrium. One should be... gesang and Taige said, check from month to month. He said, check from month to month. You should see... I mean, I'm just relying on the te- words of my own teachers, but boy, they're good words. So check from month to month to see whether you're really deriving benefit from your practice or not. And this is one practical way. As you fa- face other people's behavior, the ups and downs, good health, bad health, and so forth, are you seeing greater composure, greater equilibrium, greater resilience? I mean, real mental balance, resilience? Or is it the same old patterns, month after month, year after year? In which case, the practice is not hitting the target. Maybe you can teach really well and impress people. Maybe you can tell how many hundred thousand this you've done and how many books you've memorized and studied and blah, blah, blah. But if it doesn't really strike the target, then really, what is the point? And then how can we maintain continuity in the practice? This comes from deepening understanding, where rather than having to be kind of go from a contact high, you remember a contact high? Um, deriving our inspiration, our enthusiasm, because of just, oh, I just went to these teachings by His Holiness. So I came so inspired. He's wonderful, fantastic, loving me, so full of joy. And, and that's all true. And to get inspiration and so forth from being with His Holiness, I do. I do. I'm certainly not embarrassed of that. And from other teachers as well. Every time I see Dhamma, I just feel such, oh, what a compassionate being. With Gyatranabachi, what, ah. Oh, yeah, what kindness, what kindness. And then I feel inspired. Of course, that's true. There's nothing wrong with that. But the whole point is that we become less and less physically reliant on external sources of inspiration that we're cultivating through study. A couple of you have mentioned you like to study more. Good. Then your own understanding starts to give you greater inspiration. I would think that, I think I can say without pomposity, this is very true of me now, I've received a lot of really absolutely marvelous teachings, and my inspiration for practice doesn't tend to fluctuate much because I can see. This is, this is it. This is it. Everything else just fades into the shadows compared to Dharma, and it's just clear. It's like, yeah, got it. Thank you, all my lamas. It made it clear. And I studied hard, and I asked many questions, and I've meditated a lot. But to develop that type of inner inspiration so you don't need to rely upon others to keep on charging your battery, that shows that your understanding is deepening. And it starts out with the understanding from hearing. And that can really give some charge. I mean, just to see the, the marvel, the majesty, the depth, the integrity, the intelligence of the Dharma, It's really quite spectacular. That can be quite inspiring. But then as you start weaving it in and really testing it, again, like a goldsmith tests gold to see whether it's authentic gold or just some kind of an alloy, as you start weaving this into your life, almost like a shuttle going back and forth, like weaving, shuffle, back and forth, Dharma to my life, Dharma to my life, Dharma to my life, and saying, whoa, this, another whole level, another whole dimension of understanding arises. Like gives more inspiration. And then the more you delve into just reality through the practice of meditation. Another dimension arises. So Genlam Rimba. Genlam Rimba. He said he was not a very serious student. I mean he was he was a monk from a child from the age of seven or so in southern Tibet. Little village monastery, no big deal. He studied ritual and so forth. A lot of lot of monasteries were pretty much doing ritual, not much study. And so he was in one of those. So he was exposed to Dharma, but nothing special and then had to flee, the Chinese occupation and all of that, came down. But then he started receiving more teachings. He, was, he, was, he went up to Dalhousie. I can't remember exactly wha- how he... Well I c- don't rem- remember right now what was his trajectory bef- between Tibet and Dalhousie. But somewhere along the line, I think it started in Tibet, he started to really kind of get it. I think it happened in Tibet already there, because he was a young man before he left. And starting to really see... Oh, this is what it's all about. So, when he eventually, after spending some some time in India, I can't remember how long, but then eventually, this great aspiration, I mean genuine renunciation, arose in his mind. And he knew there was one place where there were just some absolutely exceptional teachers. I think of Deho if I remember correctly. I think he was there. This is Dalhousie. Would have been in the 60s. Pretty sure he was there. Incredible yogi. I think he was there. I'm sure... Gyenma, shall go. His Holiness said, His wisdom is like the sun. He was a master of Madhyamaka. He was teaching there. And there were some other lamas there in Dalhousie in the mid 60s or so. They kind of gathered there, one of the hill stations. And so again, I and they were they were teaching. I mean, you could really go as a monk. You could really go there and. and I think the tuk- I think they t- started what it was. Frida Bedi, Frida Bedi started a school for tukus. I think that was in Dalhousie. I'm pretty sure Dalhousie, wasn't it? Anybody remember? Yeah. So that was that was a real nucleus. So you had Chikim Tumbodumche and Tartan Tuku and who knows how many other the young Tukus all gathered in one place so they could be bombarded with high intensity beams of dharma. <coughs> so Dalhousie was a place. Gyan remember then gravitated there. Um, and also there was in being there uh, as a refugee he could get something like I don't know 10 kilos of brown flour each month. it was I think it was coming from America, helping refugees. So he could get on kind of like food stamps, but get a little bag of 10 kilos, I think, something like that. But kind of here, survive. And so he moved there. He moved to Dalhousie. There, there was no place to stay. He had no patron. He just was on the dole getting his little bag of brown flour. So there's no place to stay. This is about 2,500 meters up. Very wet, like Dharamsala, very wet in the summer, incredible monsoon. In the winter, cold and wet. He had no place to stay. Anybody remember where he stayed? There were no caves either. They were all full. No huts. That re- required rent. He had no money. He found a rock to live under. Not a full-fledged three-dimensional cave, just a rock. And he lived under a rock for a couple of years. He had his brown flower, he had his rock, and he had these incredibly fantastic llamas. He told me, this was when we lived together years later in 1988, we lived together for a year. He told me, oh, that was one of the happiest periods of my whole life. I had my rock, (laughs) I had my llamas, I had stable, regular food coming in. Very happy. Very happy. Inspiration certainly from the lamas, but had to be a lot of inspiration from inside. And then after some time, I don't know, perhaps some of the lamas passed away or what have you, but after some time, I thi- he, t- he, t- he said he felt this great yearning to be closer to His Holiness, Dalai Lama, the senior and junior tutors of His Holiness, some of the other great lamas in Dharamsala. He really wanted to be near there so he could receive teachings there, receive further guidance, spend time in retreat. But he knew that if he left Dalhousie and went to Dharamsala, there was no food supply there. They d- he couldn't get... The, the, the 10 kilos of Atta was only for Dalhousie. I don't know why, but that's what it was. So if he went to Dharamsala, no more food supply, no more 10 kilos of atta, Atta, brown flour. So, what to do? But he really wanted to go be able to live in a place with His Holiness and these other incredible lamas. He said, OK, I'll give up my security. <laughs> and Dalhousie had a rock. And Dharmzali has no rock. But also, he doesn't have 10 kilos of atas. So, But the pull of Dharma was too strong. So he said, I can always beg. I can always beg. In a refugee community, he's going to beg. Right? He never missed a meal. Eventually, I think before long, he found a, a little cabin just above the TCV, Tibetan Children's Village. He had a little cabin up there. After a while, he became a total tycoon. He had two cabins.
1: <laughs>
0: he had the summer cabin and the winter cabin. You know, like the rich... People here, one one house in Phuket, one hand, one house in London, you know. He had the winter cabin down below, down by the TCB, and then the winter, the summer cabin up high, much quieter, so he could go back before, between the two. Yeah? He never missed a meal. So, when I hear about people saying, oh, when I hear, I heard about somebody recently saying, oh. Don't just devote yourself to dharma. You can't, you can't do that. Oh, you have to think about your future. Save up money. Save up money and then do a better dharma. And then save up money, but think about your future. What you're going to be, career. I mean, yeah. That's a way to perpetuate samsara endlessly. Dharma friends like that, who needs maras? So here's a question. Okay, this is, um, in, which of the four, in which of the four mental skandhas does awareness fit in? I'm using the word generally, awareness and consciousness, interchangeably. The Tibetan word awareness, rikpa, Tibetan word for consciousness, shepa, they are used interchangeably, they're synonymous, so it's in the fifth skanda. Okay, it is, it is obviously required for vedana, feeling, and sanya, discernment, to arise in development, clearly. Consciousness, the primary mind, these are mental factors. And in the case of the samskara, or compositional factors, as William James has asserted, it is by means of awareness that we create tendencies in our reality by means of awareness together with the concomitant mental factors no question about it and vijnana can be fixed on t- to an object and apply discernment to it thanks to awareness uh, no that's that's um, the phrasing isn't good i mean you're overall right but the phrasing not that great because vinyana consciousness that's nambudheba it can be fixed to an object and apply discernment well it's conjoined with discernment simultaneously concomitantly but that vijnana itself is awareness it's not Vijnana looks over to awareness and says, thanks a million. And it's not over there. Awareness is none other than consciousness. Nevertheless, during the practice of awareness, of awareness, it seems to me that you can actually isolate awareness from those four fields. From those four fields. Four, four fields referring to... Uh, Fernando, do you want to tell me what are the four fields? The four... The four, the four no, you can't. You, no, that's not true. Uh, that is... The four mental skandhas being vedana, sa- vedana feeling, sapna, discernment, samskara, compositional factors, and then finally consciousness. The first one being form, of course. Um, when you're simply attending to awareness, are you attending to feeling? No, it's a, composi- it's a, it's a, it's a mental factor. Are you attending to discernment? No. But, and are you attending to visual perception, auditory, and so forth? No, but you are attending to mental consciousness. Okay? So, you're not, so it's, you don't isolate awareness away from mental consciousness because they are there. So if so, what is awareness then? It is consciousness. It's consciousness. Okay, is that clear? Good. So, I think this is okay. Yep, this is more of a personal note. So, and this, this orphaned one, this orphaned one waiting for days. It's, gonna, it's, it's, it's been waiting for a very short response. Can you talk a little bit about Kalachakra empowerment and about Shambhala Pure Land given that is going to take place next summer in, in Washington, D.C.? Shall we do our best to attend? Okay. <coughs> I'll speak from inside the tradition within, within from the perspective of Vajrayana. I think it's... Certainly, a legitimate perspective to speak about Vajrayana from within Vajrayana. Uh, in that context, the Kalachakra Tantra, although according to the Kalachakra Tantra itself, was taught by the Buddha, but in a very visionary fashion. In a visionary fashion for those with pure vision and so forth, it was taught during the time of the Buddha. It was requested not by some human being in our world, but requested by a king of Shambhala and his entourage. And they came to India, they requested these teachings. This, is again, is all in the pure, kind of pure vision context. Um, and the Buddha then gave the Kalachakra Tantra, presented it explicitly in response to the, question, to the request from the king of Shambhala, who then took back the great Kalachakra Tantra as well as the condensed, and I think no, the condensed Kalachakra Tantra was, it was condensed by, I think it was Bhemakaupo, can't remember, but one of the Shambhala kings. Uh, but the great Kala Chakra Tantra was then brought from India to Shambhala, back to Shambhala. So that became their centerpiece, their major form of Dharma. And so as far as people on our planet were concerned, in terms of all records of history, there's no records of Kala Chakra except for it going after Shambhala and then gone until about the 11th century. Of the common era, so something like 1500, 1600 years after the time of the Buddha. And I don't remember all the details of it. There were two, I think it was two Indian contemplatives who, went, who heard about Shambhala, had some intuitive awareness of the presence of Shambhala, went off to seek it, and to seek Shambhala, and were able to receive the Kalachakra corpus. And it was really quite remarkable, considering how many centuries had passed after the Parinavana of the Buddha. This is the time of Naropa, that so eleventh century. Uh, that very rapidly, this Kalachakra Tantra became widely accepted in India as the authentic teachings of Buddha. I mean, it's really can, can, uh, just imagine if, in the sixteenth century, some some Christian mystic should say, "Hey, I just found a new gospel." These are the teachings of Jesus. And the Roman Catholic church said, wow, great. And they just put it right in their canon and it became part of the New Testament. That'd be quite something. <laughs> it wouldn't happen. Uh, well, that is what happened. Well, that is what happened. I'm uh, quite sure Naropa himself wrote some commentary on and Chakra. And, and he, was, he was a great, great master, renowned scholar, became a renowned contemplative. So from that point on, for roughly the last thousand years, then the teachings of Kalachakra have, have been taught, transmitted, and so forth in our world. First in India, and then when things uh, Buddhism was crushed in India, prior to that it was brought to Tibet. So Tibet's been the only place, Tibet, Mongolia, Central Asia been the only place that Kalachakra has really flourished. Uh, in our world, but at the same time, according to the Kalachakra Tantra itself, the place it's really flourishing is in Shambhala. That's their centerpiece. And Shambhala is human realm. It's on our planet, but it's not something that you can drive your SUV to. There's no train tickets. you If you flew over it, you wouldn't see it. its You can see it only with pure vision, so it's where we are. The location seems to be someplace north of Tibet. So a lot more can be said about that, um, but the prophecy suggests that sometime in the future, and I'm going to keep this real short, that the world of Shambhala and our world will come into It's almost like the cloaking device will have been lifted, and there will be some explicit engagement between the two. Actually, it will be forces of good and evil and that will begin an era uh, in which the Dharma once again flourishes quite terrifically thanks to a blessing from Shambhala. So those are the prophecies. Uh, His Holiness Dalai Lama has given this initiation many times by now. There was some s- pretty strong sense a few years back that he had given it for the last time. There were some inauspicious circumstances. or so something came up, and I heard the grapevine. He said, okay, that's, I've given it many times. Enough is enough. That's it. No more. So I heard it. It's a grapevine. Did you hear that also, Basan? I guess I'm... there. I heard it. You heard it. Thank you. And where did he say it? Where was I'm it? Amaratri. Amaratri. Yeah, and, and, and where, where is that, Amarati? Uh, in Indian. Indian, uh-huh, yeah. So, so thank you, thank you. So we have somebody who heard it from him, himself. Um, but things change, and so as many of you, now, now all of you will hear right now, if you've not heard it before, next July, His Holiness will be taking something like eight days or so, something very close to eight days. Seven? Six? Only six? Eight? Ten. Eight? Ten. I looked at my calendar, It's a little bit less than that, but if it's 10, it's 10, great. Uh, so, to be giving uh, Kala Chakra Empowerment and believe Kala Chakra Teachings in Washington, D.C. So, um, here would be a suggestion I'm giving very general because this is so individual, but I w- I'll try to y- y- choose my words very carefully. If one st- feels an intuitive pull, if one, one may call it faith, intuition, something just kind of a stirring of the spirit. Uh, I'd really like to receive that empowerment, those teachings. If you feel that, if you don't, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. But if you do, and especially if you've not received Kala Chakra Empowerment already, if you have, i receive it several times by now on multiple continents, um, and I won't be able to go. I'd love to, but I have a commitment here, so I'm here. Uh, but if you've not received the Kala Chakra Empowerment before, and you feel faith, you'd love to receive this and explicitly from His Holiness, and your circumstances allow it, I would recommend it. To have that connection with His Holiness, to have that connection with Kala Chakra, and then implicitly, but just one step removed, that connection with Shambhala, will serve you well. Good idea. Very good idea. The Kala Chakra empowerment, Kala Chakra practice, uh, the the Tantra itself is in the the category of highest Yoga Tantra, so within the new translation school, and Kala Chakra is in that school, uh, or embraced, embodied, embedded in that school. Um, although it's also transmitted by Nyingma tradition. I've received Kalachakra Chakra empowerment from one Nyingma Lama. It came by way of Lama Mipam Rinpoche. So the Nyingma also have Kala Chakra. So it is Sakya. And then the Jonamba, especially, which is a subsect of the Kagyupa tradition, for them, Kalachakra Chakra is absolutely cent- central. And I found it enormously inspiring. I've been to a Jonamba monastery in eastern Tibet. I mentioned it before. Se Gomba, Se Monastery. Kalachakra is their central practice. And all of the 800 monks in that monastery either have or will engage in the three-year Kala Chakra retreat. So very, very strong emphasis. They study it. They practice it. It's very central. And they have some of the mengakh, uh, quintessential teachings, advices, practices that no other tradition has. In any case, among the various tantras, Gui Yamantaka, Yamantaka, Vajrayogini, Chakra Sambhara and many others of the highest Yoga Tantra, the Kala Chakra Tantra is the only one that His Holiness gives just freely to anybody who can basically get through the door. You know, children, kids, bring your dog. You know, pretty much anybody can get through the door. You can, you can come. Uh, there's no prerequisites. If he gives Guya Samaja or others of the highest Yoga Tantra, very often. It's restricted. Don't come unless you already have a solid foundation, you're well-prepared, and so forth and so on. There's a lot of, hey, this is, this is post-doctoral work here. Don't try to get in if you have no foundation. But Kalachakra, he gives openly, and he has from the very beginning. I received the Kalachakra empowerment for the first time from him in, I think it was very early in 1974, in Bodh Gaya, with about 100,000 people. They came out of the mountains for that so, but anybody could come, and so why? Why? Because this is—it's not kind of an easy practice. In fact, if there's any, it's probably the Kalachakra system, in terms of within Buddha Dharma, an integrated system that covers everything from embryology to cosmology. Uh, it is the most elaborate, most complex, and thoroughly integrated system of any and all of Buddhism, as in terms of a subset. It's quite extraordinary. Uh, So why does Holiness give this one, which is so advanced, so sophisticated, and frankly so complicated, why does he give this one freely, whereas the other ones, much more restricted? And I think there's a pretty broad consensus, it's not terribly mysterious, that he's giving the Kala Chakra empowerment so that people who come can receive some karmic imprint, some connection with Kala Chakra and therefore with Shambhala. And Kalachakra Empowerment is the only one that he says, as far as I can remember, if I s- say anything wrong, correct me if you know the contrary, but for years now, when he's given Kalachakra Empowerment, whether in, Washington, in whether in Madison, Wisconsin, which he did in 1981, uh, and so forth, that was the first time in the West, since then he's given it in Switzerland, and so forth and so on, it's Kalachakra for world peace. So suggesting something quite embracing, not just for... Tibetan Buddhists who are very, strong, very strongly drawn to Tantra or like that, but Kala chakra for world peace. So there must be some reason, and I won't pretend that I know all the reasons for it. But, um, so in short, then if you feel faith, you feel an aspiration, you'd like to receive this from His Holiness, uh, you'll very almost certainly uh, receive some commitment, it probably the Six Session Guru Yoga, um, and that is a marvelous practice. It's one of, th- one of the commitments I've had for a very long time that I'm really, hap- really happy I have uh, the Six Session Guru Yoga. Uh, you'll probably receive that, so you should come prepared that you will be taking on a new commitment if you don't have it already. But I think having that connection with His Holiness, that connection with Kala Chakra, with Shambhala, is very, very meaningful. If you've already received Kala Chakra empowerment, then how important it is to go that particular one, that's a matter for your own heart, your own intuition to decide. I can't say, okay. And I certainly can't tell you whether your heart, your intuition, faith draws you to go there at all. That's your that's your your business, okay. So that does it. Anything else coming up? Especially practice related to our like our example, yeah. or is everything getting now crystal clear, like flying at thirty-eight thousand feet, and it's just. All clear in all directions. Voila, so. Going once, going twice. Jacob, six twenty. You, six twenty. Walk. That's private coded language, very sec- <laughs> secret message between Jacob and me. Very mysterious. Good. Oh, I was almost out the door. <laughs> I was thinking I could get through this retreat without having to answer the questions about vegetarianism. Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> Just when I think I could get out the door. Okay, Nicola, that's what I'm here for. <laughs>
1: you mentioned yesterday about the worms and the, and the rice paddies.
0: Yeah. So <laughs> worms and bugs. Oh, so I get, I not only have to stay here but have to ask another question about eating meat. Yes, you may eat the bugs. <laughs> they were killed on your behalf. If you want to eat the bugs that have died when harvesting rice, you may do so, yes. Make sure they're dead already. Okay, don't eat well them
1: that was life. my question. Mm-hmm. That was your question? No,
0: I'm okay. kidding. Oh. <laughs> that was an easy one. Yeah, if they're dead already, by, by all, don't let them die in vain. Get us strong. <laughs>
1: <laughs> OK. Now to, to <laughs> a real question. <laughs> um, the space of the mind. Um, settling the mind when attending mostly to the space of the mind. Well, to attending the space of the, space of the,
0: the space mind. The space of
1: the mind, yeah. The second the version. Not the space of the mind and its contents. Yeah. but. Just the space of the mind. Space of the mind. Okay, gotcha. So, um, for me, this has the experience of happening kind of here, right behind my eyes. Acha.
0: The space of the mind. The space of your mind is behind your eyeballs.
1: I mean, that's how it feels. I know it's not there, but <laughs> it's. Yeah. It,
0: you know Are your eyes closed or open? Mm, mostly closed. they Mostly open. closed. Then, get a bigger, bigger theater. <laughs> You're inside a very tiny theater.
1: Well, I'm trying to um, uh, I'm trying to attend to something um, so that I don't just space out so I try to look for this to know what I'm attending to that's good um, but um, I'm looking for characteristics of it and I don't know if I'm if I should just keep the intention there and look for it and hopefully it's going to (laughs) appear or if I'm doing if there's something that I can do to kind of be more on the point Um, so in other words when I'm attending to the space of the mind sometimes it feels like it it doesn't it has a black color it has black color yeah yeah so (laughs) (laughs) so maybe you can put me out of my misery of having to explain this (laughs) and just (laughs) talk a little bit more about the space of the The mind the black
0: color is an appearance arising in the space of the mind black is an appearance it's not blue it's not yellow if you go to an art shop and you ask for a black color they won't give you an empty bottle. Okay, so it is a perception. They give you a <laughs> bottle full of black paint, right? right? They won't give you an empty bottle. <laughs> the space of the mind is empty. So if you went to an art shop and said, "Give me a, a bottle full of space of mind," <laughs> that would be empty. <laughs> but black is a color. Charcoal black, matte black, glossy black. <laughs>
1: Brownish-black,
0: grayish-black. It it comes in all different shades. It's just a really sharp, really dark shade of gray. (laughs) 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 So I would suggest keep your eyes open. And here's something you can try. We we don't have 5,000-meter snow peaks to look at here, so we're in the tropics. But you can look, especially when the sky clears a little bit, you can look at clouds that may be 10, 20 miles away. And so, on occasion, let your awareness come really out, way, way out of your head, way, way out in front of you, right, nothing behind the eyes. Let your awareness come out, way out. Looking at something. But as you're directing your visual gaze, you're also directing your mental awareness. If I'm paying attention to you, my eyes are focusing on your face, but my mental awareness is also coming, piggybacking on on visual awareness. So let your mental awareness come out to the clouds. And then, if you wish to just kind of play around a little bit, then imagine Mickey Mouse sitting in the clouds. Or imagine, oh, it kind of looks like Marilyn Monroe. whatever you see. You know, people are making shapes out of clouds all over the place. And so let your imagination play and let, you know, some imagination come out to the clouds. And so you then you're very clear that unless you actually are having a vision of Marilyn Monroe, you know, this is a mental concoction. So you're attending to something way out there that is in the space of your mind. Okay? So in Tibet, often the, the caves would be, have real elevation and they could see great distances. And that, just naturally gives. You can't help it, but it gives a sense of spaciousness because the space of your mind is, if anything, larger than the space of visual perception, right? I mean, visual perception, for example, it just goes in one direction. I can't see anything behind me. Where the space of my mind, that goes this way, too. So it's at least twice as big as the space of sight. Base of head only goes forward, base of mind goes forward and backward. But it also goes up and down. So I think that makes it what, three, four times as big, right? So let it be spacious. And know that it's transparent. That if anything including color or vibration or sparkling lights or anything like that appears, that's the content of the mind. The content of the space. But the space of the mind is no more nothing. Than visual space, and as, and you can see there. You can see there's space between you and me. You're not looking at nothing. You're seeing there, there's space there, right? And that space is nothing other than the space of the mind. It's just a subspace. Visual space. Okay. So let it be spacious. Let it be open. But again, don't linger there. That is, we d- we're not. I introduce that not to make a big deal out of it. Like, okay, here's Alan's special interpretation of settling the mind as natural state. I have nothing special to offer at all. Just to reiterate the point from before, the only reason I add that at all, which often is not added, it's not there in many of the classic treatises. The classic treatises generally say, observe whatever thoughts arise. But they're using this word thought, as in namdokh, not just for discursive thoughts. Like William James, in the, in the Western tradition, he would use the word thought for all kinds of mental events, and not just chit-chat. And the same is true in the B- Tibetan tradition. Kay? They would say, Temba Yeah, in any case, they w- you often use two words. Temba means recollections, memories, and thoughts. That it's really just anything that arises. But the very important point, and we, and there are references to this, where in the classic teachings, you know, in some of the teaching of Vipassion and so on, if I now look at the intervals between thoughts. So I didn't make that up. But just when you're settling the mind, the whole point here, just to reiterate it so you don't forget it when you leave here on November 11, is there's always something to attend to, there's always something to know. And the absence of thoughts is now not an absence of a meditative object. That's important. The absence of thoughts, well, there are no thoughts. What I look at. Look what remains. What remains is the space from which those thoughts arose, into which they dissolved, in which they are present when they come up again. But they occur in something, just like visual impressions occur in... They occur someplace. They occur in a visual field, a three-dimensional visual field. And sounds occur someplace in an auditory field. So do thoughts, mental images, memories, dreams. They too occur within a domain, a field, a space. And so then... No, there's always something to ascertain and maintain an ongoing flow, and it's only that way that you'll really get a flow of stability. Otherwise, it'll be choppy. And every time there's nothing to look at, and you go, oh, what to do now? Or you'll see a thought coming up, and it'll disappear. Oh. And then you're waiting to meditate. I hope another one comes soon. Oh, good, there's another one. Constant, continual, like a flow. So that, and of course, you can see Wow, this is immensely important when you come to the end of the, end of the program. When there are fewer and fewer, just expect that here's the general trajectory. I'm going to end actually on time today. Here's the general trajectory. When we first thought steadily in the mind, it's not true for everybody, but for a lot of people. When we are previously practicing mindfulness of breathing, thoughts were just tumbling over themselves to get in like you know 500 people trying to get into the same movie theater and the, through the one door, you know, like that. And then we say, okay, 500 people, it's your turn. Now I'm going to settle mine in its natural state. Like they all got bashful. Like, hey, I didn't want you to come. You came. Now I want you to come. Come on, be on my side. What do you have, a fight here? Give me a break here. Come on. You know what they're doing. They're standing behind the door flipping you the bird. (laughs) Anything you don't want, that's what your mind wants. I remember the first shamatha retreat I ever did. There was one image that I really couldn't stand. It was kind of crude, kind of crude. I didn't like it. It was vulgar. I didn't like it. I really didn't like it. So that was one image I really didn't want. (laughs) boy, that was like, just harassed me. Oh, you don't like it, huh? Oh, you mean this one? <laughs> this is the one you don't like? How much don't you like it? You want it again? This one, right? This, this, this one. You don't like it, huh? Ha, huh, this one? <laughs> I just wanted to take a baseball bat and just, <laughs> you know. and <laughs> Amentaike said, if you train your mind, you're practicing meditation, and you can't see any change after a month, he said, take out your mind and hit it with a rock. <laughs> <laughs> Not behaving. Right? So in the beginning, when we first pretend, they tend to vanish. But we be patient. we said, say, okay, I'll wait you out. I'm sure you want to come out. I'm sure you want to play. And then gradually, one cockroach comes out, <laughs> two cockroaches. They say, the way is clear. <laughs> And then 20 cockroaches and 50 cockroaches and, they, and then suddenly you've got more than you can handle. Big cockroaches, little cockroaches, all kinds of cockroaches. And so, cascading waterfall. And then you just be persistent, you do the practice. And then gradually, gradually, gradually subside. The intensity gradually subsides, the volume, the frequency gradually subsides, coarseness from coarse to as the clarity, vividness starts to enhance, you start to detect briefer ones, subtler ones. They start to thin out, thin out, not smoothly, but over time, they thin out, thin out, until you get these whole periods now, not that they're waiting behind the door, they just aren't there anymore. And you're getting more sporadic coming out, and they have less charge, and and then more sporadic, less frequent, and less charge, and then more subtle, and then more brief, and more subtle, and more brief, And then longer periods where you just don't detect any thoughts at all. You're just dealing with a clear and clear sense of the space of the mind. Until eventually, your mind settles in its natural state. And all those thoughts, appearances, and all the appearances of the five physical senses implode into the substrate. All the contents of the substrate dissolve into the substrate. And then you ascertain the substrate. And you ascertain it with substrate consciousness. You're finished. In phase one. You're finished in phase one. Good. Let's enjoy dinner.